Nine, 60 seconds. Best recorders, high speed. Five. Open solo fuel four, vent. Open. Three, two, one, zero. I would like to welcome you to the first episode of the podcast series Crossroads. My name is Susanna Ude and I'll be your host today. The podcast series is created in collaboration with the research program Global Conflicts and Local Interactions, which is funded by the Czech Academy of Sciences within the strategy AB21. The series will host social scientists and discuss relevant topics and problems of our globalizing world and their different social, cultural, political, economic, or geopolitical aspects. Our first guest is Professor Martin Lemberg-Peterson. Professor Martin Lemberg-Peterson is an associate professor at the Center for Advanced Migration Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a research fellow in the Horizon 2020 project Advancing Alternative Migration Governance. In his research, he focuses on geopolitical and political economic analysis of actors and networks involved in EU border management. In particular, he studies border control technologies, the dynamics of securitization and externalization of border control, and the influence of private industrial actors on EU migration policies and institutions involved in border control. His work combines different disciplinary perspectives including political philosophy, sociology, critical geography, post-colonialism, or security and border studies. Welcome, Martin, and thank you for accepting my invitation. Thank you very much, Susanna. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, here with you uh, virtually uh, as a way of uh, you know deepening uh, these uh, these important conversations, uh, even if we are relegated to the digital sphere. So let me ask you first question. The debate on migration is often presented as a matter of protection of nation-state borders, but different practices of bordering and border control are deterritorialized, which means that they are not necessarily located on particular geographic borders. This is happening mainly through outsourcing and externalization of border control or through the use of technologies of biometric identification and surveillance which creates an omnipresent control over people's mobility. The tendency towards externalization of border control and development of digital borders has been accelerated over the past two decades, but a design of migration policies to prevent migrants from entering the EU dates back to the 70s, at least. Today, much research and also critical media focus on deadly consequences of externalization and militarization of EU border controls and humanitarian catastrophes in the Mediterranean Sea. In contrast, European border management is commonly legitimized by security discourse and fight against irregular migration and smuggling networks. However, you shift the focus and argue that strategies of border externalization coupled with militarization and securitization tendencies create the problem they are allegedly trying to solve. In other words, that EU border management itself produces displacement of people and forced migration. And you call it border-induced displacement. Can you please explain this dynamic? Uh, yes, well, I can try. It's a, it's a great characterization of it uh, in your question, Susanna. But... Um, the term of border-induced displacement really came about because I, um, about a decade ago or so, was feeling a, a rather deep dissatisfaction with the role uh, that policy discourses or cartographic representations, all the maps we see in media, but also conceptual frameworks uh, ascribes to the agents of border and migration control. So I was looking at this landscape and how we were talking and thinking and representing border control, feeling that things are missing. Because um, in this landscape, border control is depicted as an almost passive reaction of states to disruptive or dangerous or even uh, violent mobilities. 
And I wanted to think about the ways in which we can work with concepts to turn around this picture, to make a, a counter-conceptualization that allow us to think about how border control can also be proactive, how it can work uh, along racialized hierarchies, and basically how this allows us to talk about the functionality of border control in a different way in a way that sort of captures more accurately what's actually happening. And of course, here I'm also thinking of its massive human consequences. So um, I was building, uh, I was reading uh, some of these typical IR, international relation categories uh, in forced migration studies, that branch of forced migration studies. And they typically said that, you know, forced displacement could take the form of conflict-induced displacement or development-induced displacement and environment-induced displacement. And then that sort of created forced migration and these forced migrants would then go come uh, to the, the borders of other states and of course predominantly Western states and then Western states would react to that in a way. And, uh, and I was looking at it and I was saying, wait, there's another kind of displacement that, that's missing in this picture and that sort of supervenes on these other kinds that is a kind of second order form of displacement that's produced by states and non-state actors. And this is what we're seeing happening through surveillance, patrols, and naval interceptions in the Mediterranean, detention camps and deportation corridors. And that's then border-induced displacement. It is to say, it's actually the displacement produced by state and non-state actors when they take these original displacees for various reason, reasons and circulate them through these nodes of control. And if we start looking at that and conceptualize border control like that, then it really problematizes some of these standard maps that we see floating around in Frontex uh, risk assessment reports, uh, state reports, media discourses, because they only show migration as these, you know, dangerously looking red arrows approaching and just going through blank spaces or terra nullum almost encroaching on uh, state territoriality. But in those pictures, uh, of course, the arrows showing how states enforce mobility, how they circulate people between camps, how people are dumped in Libyan or, or other North African deserts, they are not featuring in these maps. So uh, that was what the term of border-induced displacement was was meant to um, to open up. You mentioned uh, the typical Euro-African borders. So uh, I know that in your research you you analyzed uh, the dynamics of these borders, uh, particularly on the Libyan case. So can you uh, maybe describe a bit closer what's happening and how actually the EU contributes to to the unfolding situation? Yeah, absolutely, Susanna. And um, so this is uh, linked to the literature on externalization or border externalization, which we can understand as when states complement their uh, migration control policies across national boundaries with the outsourcing of control practices beyond their own territory. And it's very true that, uh, that African uh, Migration in Africa, and in particularly in North Africa, at least to begin with, has been a really a focus point for EU border control for quite a while now, a couple of decades at least. Although I'll argue maybe later in this podcast that it's longer than that, um, because we see that especially from the zeros and onwards, uh, Libya, countries like Libya, but also Morocco and Tunisia, they gain a really important uh, role when perceived by Eurocrats as sort of the periphery of Europe. Um, there, there are visions from the late 90s, or even actually earlier, of border control as a sort of concentric circles expanding from a European heartland and then involving non-European countries and actually also Southern European countries in controlling migration towards the center. And here Libya, uh, through uh, its, uh, its post-colonial relation with Italy, is of course a crucial ally uh, in some ways. It's also a problematic ally in that 
countries like Libya and as we see today, Turkey can use such collaborations to uh, enforce their own priorities into EU politics. And we saw uh, Berlusconi and Gaddafi entering into close collaboration. Lots and lots of contracts on border control emerged from that. And also EU support into uh, Libyan border control, such as desert patrols, um, drone uh, searches in the desert, and so on. So what we can see here is, and, and and I think it's it's basically uncontroversial that this is a pervasive aspect of European border control today. But it is the patrolling of uh, black and p- people of color and and other kinds of let's call racialized migration uh, by European uh, actors, and it's it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, there's a lot of talk about how many people die in the med- Mediterranean uh, these last years, but uh, the IOM, for instance, is estimating that uh, at least three times as many die before they even reach the Mediterranean. And that's partly because of this kind of of border control. Maybe we will talk about it later, but actually the case of Libya is also interesting from the perspective of um, extractive industries and and the geopolitical interest in natural resources. So how it plays out in in the relationship between North African countries and the EU. Yes, uh, there there are uh, well there are multiple ways in which we need to intricately link migration control and the geopolitics of that with extractivist industries and the geopolitics of that. I think we we can take it now because I think it's actually. Um, a really, a really fundamental flaw in the way in which we discuss migration. Um, and actually, it's also a, a risk that migration scholars uh, need to be aware of, myself very much included, everyone included. And that's the tendency to sort of take migration as a phenomenon and abstract it from the other geopolitical and socio-cultural context in which it takes place. And this is very much a a political tendency. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, The migration pact of the EU right now, is the the recent mutation of EU migration policies, is not talking at all, uh, linking at all with uh, EU politics on trade, import, export, extractivist industries. It talks about migration as something that functions more or less independently from these other dynamics. Um, Whereas when you think about it, migration is, of course, integrally linked with it. And if we take the case of Libya just as one of of many other cases, then, of course, uh, it is uh, one of the world's largest uh, uh, exporters of crude oil. It has huge natural gas deposits and just... The recent developments where in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, more deposits of natural gas have been found and the geopolitical tension that we see now between countries like Greece, uh, Egypt, Italy, Turkey and Libya is something we need in order to think about why we see migration and displacement and border control in these regions as well. We see the tensions between the government of national accord in Libya and the House of Representatives government, the Tobuk-based government. And we see how both sides are instrumentalizing both the presence of oil fields, inland offshore, but also pipelines for natural gas, such as the Green Stream pipeline, which goes from Western Libya to Italy. Uh, We see how these nodes are being used and played in the geopolitical alliances that form and change. And, And now with Turkey's recent deployment in Libya, we see, for instance, Italian media accusing Erdogan of using Libyan border control to exercise pressure and push out Italy from its alliance with the GNA government. And if you only talk about migration as something that 
doesn't resonate, has nothing to do with energy politics of the EU, then you don't get these uh, integral linkages and you don't get to see why these formations change and you don't see why a lot of human lives are sacrificed and instrumentalized as workers on oil platforms or in mines uh, and in, in as irregular labor in a lot of different sectors. You don't see these dimensions if you just focus on migration, the way in which, unfortunately, we typically do in, in, in European and Western media. Maybe to complete this um, politicized and historicized picture of uh, migration dynamic, we can talk um, briefly also about the role of history and, and in particular colonial histories. And I have a question for you. Uh, many critical thinkers, including yourself, highlight how the current border politics and manufacturing of fear of migrants mobilize racial categories shaped through colonial expansions, the advent of capitalism, and reshaped through global capitalism. So even though it is not accurate to make a straight comparison between colonial histories and today's migration industry and increasingly profitable markets for border control. Certainly, history can inform our understanding of current European migration policies. But I have a question also, when would be such comparisons simplifying and misleading in this case? Yes. I think uh, that's a really great question. It's also a very difficult question, Susanna. I don't know if I can do it justice because I think, um, well, to focus on the last part of your question, the risk of simplification, which I absolutely agree with. I mean, we have to be very delicate and careful when we do um, historicized analysis and also to to think about why we are doing it. Because uh, when it comes to colonialism, I think uh, there is a real risk in, in scholarship that we um, talk about present developments um, and, and sort of utilize past ones in a, in a generic or simplified or generalized way in order to actually talk about present developments. And uh, it becomes a sort of, but, but a short, short-circuited historical problematization of the present. There's a number of really important reasons why we should be historically problematizing the present. But if we invoke uh, vague or underdetermined notions of colonialism to do that, that's of course a problem. Um, I I won't uh, argue that I sort of found the panacea, the, the, the absolutely true way to do it, but, but I personally find in, in my work, it it's very inspiring to look at um, at more contextually uh, really linked uh, historical traces of border control. So what do I mean with that? I mean, uh, last year I published an article about the transatlantic slave trade. And of course, uh, I'm not saying that what's happening now is the same as what's happening then. But there's a different way to enter this, uh, this inquiry. And that is to say, well, Right now, the Caribbean and European politics is seen as, as a periphery. Actually, it's one of the world's least decolonized territories, and the EU has what it calls itself a lot of overseas territories in the Caribbean, i.e. colonies. Uh, the European Space Agency has its launch pad in French Guinea, which is at the top of South America. It's very much still a colonized space, but it's these, uh, it's, it's, it's a uh, placed in our periphery in, in, the, in the geopolitical mind. I think that if we want to understand how European border control came to be what it is today, we need to go back in time and watch its development. And here it's simply the case that we cannot we cannot bypass the transatlantic slave trade um, and the Caribbean because actually for uh, hundreds of years, the Caribbean was an absolutely central part, really high politics in European geopolitics. And if we look at a lot of the practices of border control that we are talking about today, naval interception, deportation, detention, 
externalization, we can actually see precedence to this in the transatlantic slave trade and how it evolved. So um, it's a history of European border control. But of course, we have to be um, paying attention to the, the intricacies here. In a lot of uh, slaves uh, studies of the slave trade, um, there is an Anglo-American bias because of the archives and the sources and languages split up different kinds of studies here. And it becomes very difficult if you don't speak six different languages, seven different languages of the large slaving powers of the time. So there's a methodological nationalism in the study of this kind of displacement politics that influences. But if, if you look closer, then you look at, for instance, uh, the British Navy's control of the slave trade after the abolition, after the early 18 zeros and onwards, then you have a British Navy who actually uh, conducts huge naval interceptions of slave traders en route to the Caribbean. They're not very efficient. They produce a lot of uh, uh, new routes. There's a lot of really interesting parallels to current day policies. And what we see is also that it evolves in the 1840s into a very militarized kind of humanitarian border control, where the Navy is talking about attacking smugglers inland. There's a parallel to Operation Sophia, uh, EU NAFOMED, and its vision of attacking smugglers in Libya on land. But in the case of the, uh, the suppressionist border control by the British Navy back then, this was actually pursued, and it led to large and larger colonial uh, effective occupation by the British Navy. But we also see externalization pilots where you have emancipated slaves uh, in the U.S. or in British colonies, which uh, authorities were not prepared to allow to stay there. It was deeply racialized societies, so they were exported. They were literally externalized to so-called humanitarian colonies, safe zones in Sierra Leone for the UK and in Liberia for the US. So I think this is just two cases where we can observe some really, really interesting parallels. I'm not saying equivalents, but I'm saying predecessors that show a remarkable parallelity. Uh, in uh, the kind of governance, the kind of uh, methods, the kind of technologies used to control displacement. And unfortunately, as today, there seems to be this undercurrent of deep racialization that splits off different kinds of mobility into dangerous and normal ones. So that back then, the normal and peaceful state of affairs in European politics was a hugely extractivist endeavor that displaced 12.5 even more million people to slave uh, plantations in the Caribbean, whereas the violence was seen as slave rebellions, right? It's a really remarkable uh, ascription of violence and peace. And today we have a system where you also see the causes of displacement, the original causes, extractivism is disappearing. It is part of a peaceful and normal state of world. It's just trade business as it is. Whereas the movement of people because of this and the redisplacement of them through border control, uh, that is somehow more problematized. So I think it's, it's definitely worth to consult history, but we have to be very careful when we do so. Um, let me now move uh, more to the contemporary dynamic of uh, corporatist influence of, uh, on uh, EU migration management, which I think is a really interesting aspect of, uh, of your research. But the enforcement of migration management requires technologically demanding digital border registering and surveillance systems. And on the surface, it may seem that uh, the security and military industries respond to the state's demand. However, in your research, you focus on the political economy behind the development of the EU migration management strategy by analyzing the influence and interests of industrial and financial actors. There's maybe a more visible influence of transnational corporations and their conglomerates on development and activities of EU institutions like EU Lisa Frontex or Eurosource system through acquired contracts. 
But besides this, you focus also on uh, more subtle ways private actors influence European policymaking and formulation of funding priorities through lobbying, expert consultancy, and so-called blurred forums, which uh, bring together public and private actors and, as you argue, blur the lines between public expert-driven interests and private profit-driven interests. You identify the processes of regulatory captures, path dependency, and lock-in effects. So can you outline how these blurred forums work and what consequences it has on EU migration management and development of rapidly growing market for EU border control? Uh, yes, again, thank you for um, a very uh, good uh, framed question, uh, Susanna. Um, yes, it, of, so of course there are state demands for more border control, right? That's sort of the starting point of that analysis. But then the next step, I think, is that we should not let politicians on governments off the hook too easy when it comes to the reasons why there is such demands, you know, because on the standard populist, the populist narrative, uh, they portray this view for more border control as somehow organically evolved from the depth of a self-determining democratic people. This is what the people want, right? People are concerned and so on. But I think uh, both in, when it comes to the assembly of political views, but also of the actual manifestation of border control, we need to trace how special interests and lobby organizations and financial interests actually play a huge part in formulating such views and such politics. So it's to say there is a political economy underpinning the realization of border control. And I think it operates on a transnational and multifaceted and also multi-sectoral market. And a cap, uh, an addition to that is that we can also look externalization of borders as basically an export market uh, on this view, right? So it's a way to say these infrastructures of border control are not only neutral technological fixes, they are themselves also really highly profitable. It's a way of, th of saying that you know, on, on, on some uh, important work has detailed how labor sectors really can profit from migration. That's true. Uh, but the border control itself can also be uh, a market and not just symbolically for politicians to use, actually quite concretely in terms of billions of, of euro. So drones, they cost millions of euros. So do ships, vessels, helicopters, biometric systems and databases, camp structures, deportation, charter flights, etc. They all cost things. And, and um, there's a tendency which maybe emulates um, the use of, let's call it, private military contractors in, in, in uh, military conflict situations such as Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a tendency to describe it as just sort of uh, either politicians spending a lot using, they take problems seriously, or that is just some sort of hole that these, these money runs into, but actually it's different. It's kind of, a, a, if you trace and map the contracts and actors on the field of border control, we can gauge some of the dynamics that, uh, that this market uses to influence politics. And it's true, um, we're looking, uh, for a while I've been looking into uh, what you call blurred forums. And um, it's exactly right. These are forums where it's hard to tell where public policy start and private profit uh, takes over because it can happen many different ways. And this is not exclusive to border control. Of course, it happens in all, in all sectors, but it's a typical, it happens where you have private corporate actors invited into policymaking forums, even if they might themselves have a very clear uh, profit interest in the policies resulting from this forum. Uh, there's a, a clear uh, case of this, which is uh, the revolving door syndrome. And that is basically where you have 
uh, public actors. It could be policymakers. It could be civil servants who immediately after having worked in the public uh, field land a job in a private sector uh, uh, working in the same area. And there is a number of, of examples of this in the European Commission. And I'm sure each within our own countries, we can think of very many cases as well. But that's also a case, I would argue, of blurred interests. Uh, because when you take the address uh, list of, um, of some uh, of the network you've built up as a public servant, and then you utilize the same network once you are hired by a defense contractor working on border control, becomes difficult to to say where one start and one stops. So that's the way. Uh, and and to, to be more specific, um, we uh, we looked into, for instance, the Frontex Research and Development Unit. That would be one case. Um, you can also look into um, the framework programs of the European Union. Uh, that is also uh, research funding. At, but at the same time, it's also quite clearly subsidizing the industry, uh, industrial actors that is working with border control, the same with Horizon 2020, Horizon Europe. You have different kinds of uh, experts and advisory groups, which are used to basically formulate the calls within these funding programs and what these calls should ask um, applicants to, to work on. And if you look at some of these working programs, they're really, really specific saying, we need aerial surveillance of uh, small boats on the Mediterranean. We need research proposals on that. So the development of that specific call and how actually industrial actors are part of that and then may also respond to that is, is another case of a, of a blurred forum. Uh, and, um, and then to, to link it to, to these concepts uh, of, um, of path dependency that you mentioned, it, it is true that if you have this system where you have a lot of actors um, and, and blurred interest, then you, you get actually a materiality, an infrastructure border control that's geared towards certain aims, certain functions, but also excludes other functions. And it becomes difficult for political actors to challenge that, uh, to reverse that, uh, to think otherwise about border control. And it, that leads to path dependency, lock-in effects in border control. And these processes typically also uh, manifest themselves in that the regulatory framework surrounding border control is also the site of such lobbyism and also becomes geared in this direction. So I think it's a, this kind of influence is really crucial uh, for understanding why we're seeing border control evolve the way it does these years, and also the, the risks of not being able to challenge it politically that uh, we also see these years. Well, recently with your colleagues, you published uh, the report, The Political Economy of Entry Governance, which uh, actually talks quite in detail about different examples. Uh, I would like to just uh, go briefly into one uh, dynamic and it, that is the double goal, which is explicitly behind this development. So first it is the security and, and, and the fight against uh, irregular migration, but then it is linked to also the goal of development of uh, European security market and actually bo bolstering uh, competitiveness of uh, European uh, companies, of so-called European companies. Right. Yes, it's really telling, and and there are also other links that. But maybe I can I can get to to that one thing at a time, as they say. But it's clear that um, if you look at them. The white uh, papers, the reports, the conferences, and all of these ways, nodes of communication that uh, these commercial actors 
working on landing contracts for border control, how they frame their own work. Security and securitization is a big part of it. They're in a funny way granted a, a double role as both the providers, but also the independent experts on border security. So they get to or try to frame the problems, saying what the risks are. And then they also stand to gain from politicians taking over that understanding so that, you know, boat migrations in the Mediterranean are not necessarily a humanitarian crisis, but are illegal migrants endangering territory, which is why you need to buy this latest patrol boat or the swarms of drones or, and so on and so on. Um, so that's clear. That's one, uh, that's one dominant discourse. And then in the report, as you mentioned, we, we go into looking at how this is not just not just playing security, but it's actually also in a deeper game appealing very much to uh, common European or European harmonization goals about fostering an EU single market of uh, arms, uh, of weapons manufacture, of defense. So the European defense industry has, uh, since the end of the, the Cold War, uh, been sort of uh, struggling a bit. The war on terrorism has been quite profitable for the homeland industry. Um, but uh, there is, uh, in the words of the defense security itself, a big problem in the competition with other regions in the world, such as Chinese or American uh, defense. So here you have suddenly you have border control placed into a European market as a way in which you can compete with other regions. Could also be the big countries as it was earlier. It changes a little bit according to the geopolitical agenda of the day, but uh, this com competitive argument is, is very dominant. And then there's another argument that ties to it that's also quite interesting, and that is a discourse on market fra fragmentation. Of fragmentation. And this is then you have these uh, transnational conglomerates who, knowing that there is an EU uh, discourse on harmonization, speaks into it and, and, and basically argues that there is a need for more funds our way in order to make sure that every state's uh, arms industry doesn't run in, in its own separate way. There's more need for common European defense projects. And there they use border control as a, as a very big example of it. And it's interesting because when you look at the discourses, this is not actually something they always appeal to. At other times, they appeal, Italian companies will appeal to the need to support Italian uh, defense industry and Italian exports or French companies will appeal to French and German to the German industry and so on. So actually, it's more a case of appealing to the problem of market fragmentation when they're talking to EU bodies and then appealing to national economic interest when they're talking to national bodies. And um, and then it depends on where they're trying to seek out funds. So in that sense, there is this uh, duality. Yes, there's this complementarity between talking security, diagnosing problems, landing contracts, and then speaking sometimes to EU bodies, sometimes to national bodies. And that creates different discourses. But in your work, you actually also focus on the financial sector, uh, which plays a key role in, uh, in this capital-intensive biometric security and military sector. And I find it actually interesting that if you follow the money, uh, you can identify certain patterns behind, behind the main infrastructure involved in the European border control, but you also trace it back to the interests of some member states uh, through uh, share ownership in, uh, in main uh, com companies. So can you talk a bit about this? Yes. Yeah, I think the financial dimension uh, is a very underexamined aspect of research into European or global border control. Um, in a way, it's, it is to kind of stubbornly ask, what is the problem here? Because then you have border control and some will say, well, 
you should have open borders, closed borders. I don't think that's a very helpful dichotomy. I'm more interested in the functionality. Okay, then you can look at the militarization of border controls. And again, you have debates about, you know, the humanitarian consequences, which are best of this. But then pressing onwards, we're asking, so why, why do we see militarization? Who is doing the militarization? It is not, I don't believe in a sort of, Copenhagen school securitization model where you have a speech act and an actor just says something and then suddenly borders are militarized or securitized. We need to look into the political economy behind the militarization, right? But then I also don't want to stop the inquiry at the the evil companies, you know, doing this because behind the companies, there are ownerships. There are shares, there are stocks, there are credit institutions, uh, there are export credit agencies, investment banks, and so on. It is a way of upscaling the inquiry into how borders are manifested to the financial level. And, uh, and here, I think we see that the, basically the operations and the strategic visions of many of these uh, border control uh, companies in the EU and in the world, they simply would not be possible without the involvement of these financial actors. We have to remember, it's a very capital intensive uh, sector, right? It really, especially when we look at space-based border control technologies, these are billions and billions of euro. So without the operation of banks and credit institutions, um, audacious uh, export ventures into Libya, for instance, a a highly volatile and evolving situation wouldn't be possible. So so without this, we we simply, we don't understand exactly what's happened um, and why it could go on happening. And so when we look at these dynamics, we see uh, in terms of ownership, there are different structures. And um, if I just take a helicopter stance uh, to describe it, then you can see that in when it comes to the infrastructures for databases, for the border control technology that involves databases that takes biometric uh, information about migrants, such as fingerprints or iris scans, etc., stores it in databases and distributes it out to different member states and so on. These kinds are very expensive, very capital intensive, but the ownership of the companies involved in producing and providing that kind of technology is very dominated by private capital. So you have free-floating private equity, such as as the Vanguard Group, um, Capital Research, Fidelity Management and Research. They fund and own many of the shares in the companies involved in that kind of border control technology. Uh, And then if you look at some of the others, more sort of conventional defense contractors that provides, you know, the hardware for border control technology, like we talked about drones, or we talk about satellites, or we talk about ships and so on. These are are remarkably different in that more government controlled funds, state funds are involved in this. And uh, this is a remnant that uh, we can see, I would say also from colonial times, where you have state-owned companies, basically nationalized companies, which in today's world or today's configuration has been sold off a bit. But one case in point I would point to is what's the Italian Leonardo today, used to be called Finmeccanica. Uh, Before that, one branch of it during Italian colonialism was called Ansaldo. Uh, Finmeccanica is owned one-third of it by the Italian state. Since the second largest owner of shares in Finmeccanica only owns about 5%, you can gather that it's in everything but name actually a state-controlled entity uh, masquerading as a private actor uh, on the market. It's also interesting to see that uh, Leonardo is the top three stock owners is the Italian state, the Libyan state, and the Norwegian state. I mean, funds controlled by these states. That gives us a different way of 
accessing the geopolitics and the geopolitical agendas involved in in the actions of Leonardo. But also if we look at other companies, uh, then you have, uh, for instance, um, Let's take uh, Thales, where you have um, uh, you have a, a French state ownership. You also have EADS, uh, Airbus, sorry, as it's called today, where you also have uh, the German, French, and, it, and Spanish state uh, ownership. So, in different ways, uh, the government-controlled defense contractors show a different kind of ownership structure than the private ones. And it's kind of interesting to compare these, these different uh, agendas. Would you say that uh, it actually may influence also the discussion within the EU? I mean, sort of uh, like conflicts between the European interests and, and the separate national states interests. And, you know, uh, the case of migration is actually quite telling in, in these uh, reoccurring conflicts. I think absolutely. And I think this is a, a very an, an, an unfortunately bypassed dimension of border control. We can, I think, observe this kind of tensions uh, and, and disagreements also in other sectors, energy, for instance. Uh, but, but focusing on border control, absolutely. We know that when boat migrants arrive uh, or sail in the Mediterranean, we've seen dozens, countless times, states argue about whose responsibility it is to take responsibility for them, right? Uh, but when it comes to these kinds of uh, these kinds of discussions um, within the EU, then I, I think in some ways we need to recognize that although the EU system itself is really good at producing discourses about single market, harmonization, and EU entity. Sometimes it is also a sort of a, a very thin layer covering over some very obvious member state differences and member state geopolitics so that you have, um, let's continue in the case of Libya, very clear differences between France and Italy uh, in, in the last years, where you have uh, a very active uh, engagement by Macron in, in, in Libyan politics, which is traditionally an Italian sphere of influence. Um, so, so you actually have these different export markets and national economic interests, which aren't the same where member states have differences. And once you go into and you use the development of border control technology and these massive contracts as a prism to, to look into, then you can see these differences between states. And you can see also how different states change their actions over time. Uh, now, because of the Eastern Mediterranean energy grab, uh, France and Italy may join forces, uh, which they didn't before then, but because of Turkey's involvement in Libya, for instance, you can also see Norway suddenly rising as a co-owner of Libyan, uh, uh, sorry, of, of Leonardo and its many contracts in Northern Africa. And uh, when you look at the development of the Schengen information system and the database, you see a very fierce competition between the industries of the different member state countries and how different actors replace each other. So I think this is a very useful way, looking at this political economy, to um, get a reality check about the actual harmonization uh, of the EU political and economic sphere versus what is quite clearly a lot of national economic interests uh, where EU border control is just simply used as a tool to promote them. I would like to now move uh, more into this uh, biometrics industry and, and the surveillance. Um, I would say that there is still a lack of public knowledge about the scale and magnitude of uh, alphanumeric and biometric data which are being collected for the purpose of digital border control and surveillance and how rapidly European large-scale digital databases and networks develop. In particular, migrants and refugees are subjected to a pervasive 
monitoring of their mobility. And as you argue, paradoxically, biometric surveillance over migrants is being justified by portraying them both as a risk for national security or European security and at risk for human rights violations. So if we stay with the perspective of political economy, how these biometric data collected on migrants and refugees generate profit and uh, how the fact that the humanitarian sector becomes an emerging market for biometric technologies actually influence the practices of humanitarian work. Yes, uh, again, uh, a, a great question. I, I think um, maybe a good way to, to enter the, this complex question is to, to uh, you know, start with an agreement that everyone now says that the data is the new gold, right? But if this is the case, then the infrastructures used to generate the digital footprints of displacement data, data about displaced populations, are then also themselves of great political and economic value. So in this recent article, uh, Reassembling the Surveillable Refugee Body in the Era of Data Craving, that I co-authored with Iman Hayoti, we uh, tasked ourselves uh, with tracing the travel of biometric data from the point of Syrians displaced in Jordan, and then these large technological infrastructures used to harvest, extract their biometric data, and what then happened with it. What actors are involved in supporting this infrastructure? What kind of digital footprints are created? What are they used for? And uh, what kind of journey of displacement data can we see when we look at it? And uh, as it so happened, it took us, you know, it was it was actually a, it was an interesting and a different way of looking at displacement, because uh, it transcended this state centrism that we also talked about before. Because uh, now we're looking at a range of different actors. Uh, um, it was the UNHCR for instance, the World Bank Group, but also, again, private uh, private actors, uh, companies like Iris Guard or Accenture. So it's a way of going beyond the standard narratives about borders and displacement again. So on this narrative, maybe humanitarian actors, you know, saving lives and states, they respond to displacement. And actually, when you look at uh, biometrics, uh, refugee biometrics and, and, and displacement data, there's a deep implication between states, international organizations, the financial sector, and the ICT and security sector. So it's a way of examining the technologies they roll out, uh, their political economies, and how these various actors are monetizing, financially securitizing this data. So um, I, we use a concept called data craving. We, we invent the concept of data craving there. It, it came up in, in several interviews and we were talking with different kinds of actors. And one thing that was clear was that everybody wanted more data. Data, data, data. It was, and there was a disaggregated data. Numerous ways in which people could talk about data was surprising, or, or maybe not surprising, but was remarkable. And so we we wanted to say, well, what's happening here? There seems to be an intense desire for the extraction, storage, and processing of different forms of data about displaced persons, right, populations. Um, and it was sort of characterized by this logic of data maximization, more and more data, and uh, less attention to the quality of data. As long as someone could say they had access to data, they sort of tried to insert themselves in the political framework, such as uh, you know, the, the New York declarations or the compacts on, on refugees, the compacts on irregular migration. It, data became a bargaining chip in a sort of emerging um, political economy of displacement politics. And it, it took different form. In, in this recent article, we, we look at exactly what kind of data is then produced about the uh, Syrians displaced in Jordan. And um, I just 
setting the context, these are people who have to scan their irises, uh, local markets in order to get food, get clothing, vegetables, etc., medicine, and so on. Uh, and this kind of scanning devices then basically developed in, in, a, in an ensemble that includes both companies like IrisGuard, humanitarian actors like the UNHCR and many local ones, and then also the World, uh, the World Bank Group. So different kind of data is produced there, such as what they call real-time refugee withdrawal data that basically records the time and place where uh, refugees uh, withdraw cash or scan their eyes uh, in order to create the credit history and economic identity of displaced persons uh, and basically facilitating the expansion of financial services, which is of course something that credit institutions are very interested in. So we observed uh, completely explicitly in many of the reports on this issue, this fusion of displaced populations with the concept of unbanked populations, where the fact that you are unbanked constitutes a huge and almost humanitarian problem, right? So there you see this fusion of financialization and humanitarization into this joint logic. And again, it's, it's blurred, right? It's, is, it, is it a discourse produced by the UNHCR or is it a discourse produced by the World Bank Group? Well, it becomes difficult to disentangle, especially when you observe that the UNHCR and the World Bank Group have created a joint data center, which is based uh, here in Copenhagen and concerns the dissemination and brokering of different kinds of displacement data. But also you can see UNHCR and Accenture uh, joining forces to, writing, to write reports that uh, recommend expanding the technological infrastructure of connectivity to unbanked populations. That's something that's, of course, very profitable potentially for Accenture, although Accenture is a co-author of the same, of the same uh, report. So what you see is, is um, what we're trying to problematize in the article, what this does to the function and identity of actors such as the UNHCR, who are tasked with you know, protecting uh, the beneficiaries of, of their humanitarian supply chains, but at the same time use these humanitarian supply chains um, to more and more effectivize and and restructure um, the the aid to refugees according to donor preferences. Donors such as the World Bank Group and of course states uh, who have uh, as part of their economic interest the activities of large ICT companies involved in in some of these operations. I think looking at uh the scale of, uh, of, of the monitoring and, and collection of uh, biometric data on uh, refugees come close to a good uh, dystopian vision um, about uh, possible technological control. And, and you also highlight that it is actually a technological coercion because um, the involvement is not voluntary as uh, it conditions the access to financial assistance and uh, provision of basic needs for these refugees. I find interesting also how you should focus on the fact that new technologies are sort of uh, piloted on, uh, on refugees and, and then patented by these uh, private actors and uh, companies, which um, potentially produce quite a bit of profit uh, and uh, in the future probably will be applied to all of us. Yes, uh, there's also uh, great work by Ketelinsko, Jakobsen and, and others on how testing on refugee populations uh, often result in technologies later on expanded to, to citizens. And we can can sort of conceptualize refugee population, displaced populations as 
as a sort of a quasi-citizenship uh, when it comes to how they are dependent on humanitarian uh, organizations and, and, and their sort of operations, right? Because they are doling out the services uh, that they need. But it's also equally true that when you look at companies like Iris Guard or others, they are, it's all there actually when you observe their discourses, their reports, their websites and so on, the interviews, that their involvement in these humanitarian operations is also allowing them to take out patents in the technologies. And so they're framing themselves as humanitarian actors. Actually, it depends a little bit on the contract. The same technology I've seen is, is, is sometimes referred to as border control technology, deportation technology. And then at other times, the same technology is referred to as, as humanitarian and helping assist people in need. But either way, it is helping them to take out several patents so that displacement becomes a laboratory, actually, where sometimes in, in many countries, also the regulatory frameworks are not as, as strong as they would be in other ways. And also there might be uh, exemptions when you're collaborating with the UNHCR. And then sometimes these actors then use this in order to pilot new technologies. And I'm sure you know, we're not hearing half of the story. There might be many technologies that never materialize or aren't successful, but are still sort of tested and piloted in displacement contexts. And that's, I think, a very important story that we need to be talking much more about. So let me just maybe wrap up our discussion by going to what's happening now amidst uh, the pandemic. One of the criticism of the EU migration management is that it is not sustainable in the long term. As, um, as uh, you mentioned, uh, global economy and also um, EU border control strategies actually creates the problem they are trying to solve. And it is also quite unreasonable to expect that it is possible to contain migrants behind the border fences. However, now as we speak in the midst of pandemics, uh, which gave way to even tighter border controls, one can ask if some restrictive measures, which were not politically enforceable and maybe even unimaginable before, such as suspending asylum applications, suspending visa proce processing and issuing for some third country nationals, etc., won't remain much longer then it is necessary for health reasons. So how do you think the pandemics will affect EU migration policies? Uh, yeah, those are good questions. Uh, and it's, of course, in many different ways. And uh, they're not necessarily all in the same direction, so to speak. Um, one of the immediate uh, dip, um, consequences that I could observe, because right now I'm uh, working with the research assistants on a report on deportation politics or several reports. And in this area, we observed and talking with police officers that there was an almost immediate shutdown to deportation because uh, of the coronavirus and health reasons, uh, the vast cost of insuring charter flights, and uh, etc. Um, and um, and in the a little bit more longer term, we we heard several people, uh, both police officers and others, saying that they expect Corona to be a sort of a, a bargaining chip that uh, might uh, put a hindrance on some forms of deportations in the future because states to which which deportees are sent may uh, require uh, vaccines or, or other kinds of health screenings, and so it can make deportation more costly and so on. Uh, we also saw some of the, in the other direction, some, some pretty terrible scenes uh, from the Moria camp, uh, for instance, in Greece, where the very heavy-handed differentiation, really a social differentiation, right, of, of the inhabitants into corona, so, uh, those having corona and those not, led to the, basically the burning down of this old and, and terrible camp replaced by another one which seems to be quite as as terrible in many ways as well uh, we also saw in the mediterranean around malta 
uh, and actually Greece and Italy as well, uh, that basically declared their own harbors unsafe for embarkation using corona as saying we we cannot be safe for refugees therefore we we simply close down for asylum seeking like you you mentioned as well malta created a floating detention zone by outsourcing border control to uh, some some ships some some tourist vessels as well that they then parked uh, or floated around in international waters so we saw these uh, different kinds of responses to the corona. But uh, in terms of the more longer and entrenched uh, tendencies, it seems clear that there is a tightening of border control, uh, which leads to more precarious conditions, both in camps and, of course, also on travels. Uh, we see with the EU migration pact, a sort of a it's presented as something new, but I think it is a consolidation of many of the restrictive tendencies that we've seen uh, in the last decades in EU politics. Um, there is some talk of solidarity. Uh, there, but um, I think uh, that remains to be seen between the member states because some of them can basically pay their way out of solidarity, entrenching the the sort of north south differences or asymmetry in European border control. Um, I think it has also ex quite clearly accelerated what we just talked about, which is uh, more digitalized uh, border controls and databases systems um, and this push for data craving and displacement data. Um, I think in various ways we're seeing that sector, that market, that border of border control politics uh, on the rise. And then at the same time, I think we're also seeing all through 2020, the, continu the unabated continuity of geopolitics. So there is still an energy grab in the Eastern Mediterranean, for instance. There is still mining of critical uh, minerals. Uh, people working in mines in, in Africa and Asia, uh, South America and so on, are still working in mines. They are still extracting the minerals that we need for our mobile phones uh, and so on. So even though the sale of mobile phone maybe have... Um, plummeted to some some degree, or at least the, the the trading and the merchants have a harder time. The supply lines underpinning this kind of uh, trade are still there and are still continuing, and states are still struggling and fighting between themselves to position themselves. So uh, I think there's going to come out a lot of work now on on corona and the impact on on border and migration but um and and it's very interesting to see the intricacies of it but at the general level it seems to have entrenched some of these some of these uh, dynamics well thank you but our time is up but i think it was really interesting discussion actually locating migration within the broader framework, which is, as you mentioned, quite absent, not only from, from a policy discourse, but also to some extent from, from the research. And, um, well, we, we don't really end with a very positive note, but maybe the positive uh, note could be that um, the only way to move forward is to work for and hope for some kind of solidarity movement which would actually overcome the division between citizens and migrants. So thank you for your time and, and for, for, the, uh, for the discussion. Yeah, you're very welcome, Susanna. Thank you for having me and for asking great questions. I think there are there are lots of things we can be hopeful for in the future. But uh, when it comes to asking a critical researcher, uh, then sometimes you get a, a critical take on some things. But, uh, but of course, there are numerous uh, solidarity movements. There's the Black Lives Matter uh, protest movement that we've also seen generate some really important questions. And I think we have all gotten a lesson in humility and the importance of our social lives in the last uh, times and last years. So, uh, so I'm hoping also for, for improvements in the next year to come.